you would take out your Bibles and open them to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we are grateful for the opportunity we have to come and to worship. Primarily, Father, because it means that we have been saved from our sin because we now belong to you we're part of your family and that when we die we'll be in heaven with you and so father the opportunity we have to come and to worship you as your children is indeed a great blessing and we thank you for that father as we worship you by the giving of tithes and offerings and the songs that we sing the scripture that we read father we we desire to celebrate who you are to remind ourselves of the truth concerning who you are and your greatness, and again, of your love for us. And Father, we commit ourselves also to your word as we open your word during this time where we focus in on, in this particular case, in the book of Matthew, and in the words of Jesus. And so, Father, we ask that as we, as we contemplate those things that Jesus said, that, Father, these things will, will shape the way we think, change the way we think if necessary, that they'll have a tremendous impact on our attitudes and our thoughts about all things. As always, Father, we know that you are extremely patient with us, and for that we are grateful. We do thank you, Father, for this opportunity we have to open your word together. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 5, verses 31 to 32. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I think you can tell what the theme is today. It's on divorce. Remarriage and what Jesus says about it. What Jesus is talking about here is based on the book of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, which reads... When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. So we need to make sure we understand the phrase, he has found some indecency. What does it mean in Deuteronomy when it says that? Some rabbis... When I say that, this is all during the time of Christ and the, 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 the time preceding the time of Christ. Interpreted indecency as a reference to sexual sin. Others defined indecency as anything in the wife that displeased the husband. So an example would be this. If she failed to complete enough household tasks, if she was physically unattractive. Now I know you're thinking, how in the world has that happened? Well, remember that in most cases, marriage was arranged, and it was not uncommon that the very first time you saw your husband and wife was the day of your marriage. Uh, so if you found her unattractive, you could, according to this group of rabbis, you could divorce her. If she overcooked a meal, if she burnt your toast or burnt your grits, uh, failing to offer sexual relations frequently enough, all of these were grounds for divorce. Josephus states that one of the Pharisees in the first century wrote that the Pharisees as a whole permitted divorce for basically any reason at all. So which is it? 
Well, I think the statement from Jesus clears up the matter by just the way he says that. He says, except on the ground of sexual immorality. The word translated sexual immorality, which is the word fornication or the word unchastity, is the word porneia. So what word we get from that? It means any sexual sin. So that is the only exception that's given here. So the premise then that Jesus is stating is that if you divorce, it is wrong except on one grounds, which is sexual immorality. That's it. And of course, there's consequences then if you divorce your wife for another reason. Now, we need to know, understand what's going on culturally here so we can understand what's going on with what Jesus says. Number one, Jesus is not making a comment on whether, that right, whether this is right or wrong, but during the time of Jesus, men could divorce their wife. Women had no standing, so they were unable to divorce their husbands. So he's not saying it's right or wrong. That's just how it was. That's why it's all directed towards the man and what he does with his wife. When the husband divorced his wife back then, she would be given a certificate of divorce. The divorce certificate given at that time, the one that was given to women, stated that she was free to marry any man. So I'm not sure if, if, the, uh, if the man who's divorcing his wife, he would get that certificate from his rabbi, or he would get it from the Pharisees or from the council, but basically there was an official document and it was a certificate of divorce, but it said on that, on that certificate, it said that she was free to marry any man, regardless of what the reason was for the divorce. Now, that was important because of the economic structure of their society. Because in those days, the only way a woman would be able to make it in life, to have shelter, food, clothes, etc., was either to be married or to be taken care of by her family or become a prostitute. That was it. There were no careers for women. She couldn't go out and sell real estate. She couldn't do any of those things. Right, so this, is, this was the, the situation they were in. So Jewish society as a whole, they would not want to create a situation where they were turning out or forcing many women to become prostitutes. So the phrase, free to marry any man, was really very important. So one of the implications then of what Jesus is saying here is this. That divorce certificate had no authority to dissolve the original marriage in the eyes of God. The only exception was sexual sin. And so there were, and this would have, would have affected hundreds of individuals. It was a kind of a, people think, oh, divorce is so common today. It was coming back then too. Uh, there were just men all over the place trying to find a reason to divorce their, their wives so they could marry someone else. So I want you to turn, if you would, to the book of Malachi, chapter 2. We're, kind of, we're going to use this kind of as, as, our, as our foundation for what we're talking about here and, and the words that Jesus is speaking. In Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he, has no because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So let me set the context for you so you understand what God is getting at and what he's talking about here when he speaks to Israel, because this is a, a message to the nation of Israel. Israel is being charged with unfaithfulness. The whole nation is being charged with unfaithfulness. Israel is accused of unfaithfulness because they are, as a rule, breaking the marriage covenant. They have been unfaithful in their relationships with each other. So not every single man is guilty of this, but there's a, there's a majority of the nation that's guilty of this uh, or guilty of going along with this. And so God is, God is letting them know he takes all of this really very seriously. We need to remember something. I, I, I remember when I was much younger, um, and I was thinking about marriage, not me getting married, but just marriage in general. I, I was thinking about how the church approaches marriage and then how, how the world approaches marriage. And I remember hearing my dad in discussions talking to individuals, and the way that he was talking was always like he was taking what the Bible says, and he was applying it to people who were married like by the state or by the judge. And I, for a while, when I was young, I just thought that was kind of strange. But then I came to, to the understanding that actually, marriage really is God's idea. It, everything comes from God. For, for us to think that somehow there's such a thing as a secular marriage and a spiritual marriage or, or a Christian marriage or a biblical marriage, that somehow that man has the right to marry whomever he wants and make up his own rules for marriage, even if they're, even if they're moral and good, we don't have that right. We are all created by God. All of us owe God. All of us are expected to be in submission to everything that God says. Not just the Christian. Everyone. That's what they're judged by. God doesn't judge Christians by the Bible and then judge others by some other uh, uh, phenomenon. It's, 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 everyone is judged by the scripture. Of course, what we know is the standard that's used, the Bible, every single person, even the Christian is going to be found guilty of violating what God has said. Every single one of us. And the only reason we make it as Christians is because of the grace of God, because we placed our faith in Christ. It's not because we have found a way to obey the Bible. We haven't. We, we are guilty of disobeying the Bible and, and disobeying the commands of God. So this, the entire arena of marriage really is that which is owned by God. And God does have the right to say what he says about marriage. And so when we think about this, I don't want you to think of this only in terms of Christians, though we should because we're Christians. This really is how God is viewing everyone. So when marriages dissolve, it's not just the Christian marriage that dissolves that, that God is unhappy with. God is unhappy with all marriages that dissolve, period. His view of marriage is not different for the individual who's not a believer and for the individual who's a believer. So we want to make sure that we keep that straight. So Israel now, they have violated as a whole, either by, by condoning or by being involved themselves, in been violating the covenant of marriage. They've been unfaithful in their relationships to each other. Verse 11 of Malachi 2 says, Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So what's going on here is that uh, these men, when they were divorcing their wives, they were doing so 
so they can marry pagan women. That's what, that's what was going on. And so that's kind of adding on to this guilt that these individuals have in, in not just violating the, the, the covenant of marriage and being faithless to their wife, but it's, it's a faithlessness to God. And then they took the next step by deliberately disobeying the command of God, which was not to marry uh, foreigners. Now, in the Bible, when it says not to marry foreigners, that's not mixed marriages. What that is, is that you don't marry an individual who does not worship the one true God. That's, kind of, that's the main idea that is there. So the charge that the men of Israel were marrying these pagan women, and again, in order to facilitate that, they were divorcing their current wives to make that happen. Verse 12 references the arrogant disregard Israel had for the holiness of God, as they would marry pagan women and bring offerings to the Lord, seeking his blessing. So that's what we began with when we began to read. There, it began with a question. And the question is that they were covering the Lord's altar with tears and weeping because God no longer accepted their offerings and no longer um, would give them favor. And they were like wondering why. Well, this is the explanation. So the section then that we, where we began, began to read in verse 13, when it talked about the flood of the tears on the Lord's altars, there is a question, which is, whose tears do these refer to? Some would suggest they were the tears of the divorced wives who were seeking justice from the Lord. Others state that these were the tears of the men who, after divorcing their Israelite wives to marry pagans, found the Lord no longer received their offerings. Well, maybe both groups are crying. Some believe that more likely in keeping with the context, it's the men, but nevertheless, that's the situation. So in this passage, and on this issue, Malachi is stressing the Israelites' spiritual insensitivity to the things of God. They are insensitive to God's holiness. They are not, for whatever the reason, they're not making the connection between what they do every day, and in particular in their marriage, with who God is. Remember that there is not this separation in our lives where we have the spiritual aspect of our life and we have a secular or a physical aspect of our life. All of it is intertwined together. What you and I do, everything matters to God, all of it. So when we sin, we are disregarding the holiness of God. Just so you understand that, that's what's going on. It's, it's not like, well, yeah, I know I should have obeyed God. Well, it's actually more than that. I mean, that is what's going on. But it's revealing your heart. And, and what's revealing about your heart is that you have this disregard for God's holiness. You have a disregard for what's important to God. You've replaced your loyalty to God, being number one, with a loyalty to yourself or a loyalty to your passions or whatever it may happen to be. And so that, that's what he's kind of bringing out from this passage. And that's really what the Lord is addressing uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. So again, in this passage, Malachi is stressing the Israelites' spiritual insensitivity. And I believe that Jesus here in Matthew 5 is alluding to the same thing. He's showing them the righteousness that God requires. Remember how all this began. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of God. Now, sometimes when we think about that, we think in terms of the Pharisees and all these extra laws they made and how they broke those laws and how they try to find loopholes to appear holy, uh, and they weren't. But let's take as our example a good Pharisee. Let's take a guy like Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus, men who were devout, 
They were like the other Pharisees in the sense that they were zealous for obeying the commands of God. Outwardly, these men were viewed as being incredibly righteous men, zealous for the things of God. Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you're not going to see the kingdom. The message to you and I is, once again, every aspect of your life, and in this specific case, your marriage reflects your commitment to God. It reflects your attitude towards God and the things of God. It is not a separate issue. It's not isolated in any way. That's why sometimes an individual may be thinking, especially if you're having trouble in your marriage or perhaps you end up in a position where you become a believer and your spouse is not a believer, but as long as they're content to stay with you, according to the scriptures, you're not allowed to divorce them. But you're thinking about that individual in your life as being a great hindrance to your walk as a Christian. You believe that you'll have greater peace emotionally, spiritually, or both if this individual who may be antagonistic is out of your life. And so the idea that germinates in our mind is how much better our devotion to God will be, my peace with God will be, how much deeper my spirituality will be if that person is out of my life. That's untrue. That is your rebellious heart speaking to you, trying to find a way to use the scripture to justify your rebellion against God. You don't feel that at that moment. Perhaps you truly feel like this is going to be that path that helps you to be more devoted to God. But it's not. God has called you to remain where you are and to serve him where you are. Period. That individual may be a, uh, an obstacle, but they're not a hindrance to your walk with the Lord and your peace with God. They may create difficulty in your immediate circumstance, but they cannot touch what you have with the Lord. In the same way that if all of a sudden a hurricane comes our way and destroys our homes and destroys our way of life, if we still have our family intact, what are, we, what are we normally thinking? All these other things can be replaced. My family cannot because that's, what, that's, what most, that's what's most important. My relationship with them cannot be replaced. And it cannot be touched by the hurricane. Well, my relationship with God cannot be, cannot be hurt by the hurricane of your marriage. It can't be. It's about you and your attitude and your trust in the Lord. And so we want to make sure that, that we, again, are, are approaching our marriages in a way that truly honors God and reflects the conviction of what God says about our situation and about marriage in general. And so then God here, I believe, wants us to understand the significance then of our marriage and what we do. Malachi 2.16, um, you may have heard this verse in a very different way. Let me read this verse to you from the New American Standard because this is what most of us are used to hearing and oftentimes what's quoted. So verse 16 of Malachi 2, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. That's not what I read this morning. I read from the English Standard Version. It reads very differently. It says, For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord God, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. 
So the wording is clearly different. And so, and I noticed that as I was reading through this, and I said, oh man, what in the world? Because that's not just a difference of just one word. This, this is a whole different thing. And we have heard this quote many times, God hates divorce. Through all of my studying, and I'm not a, I'm not a Hebrew expert, but I did a lot of reading on this. Most likely, the phrasing, God hates divorce, is not what is written in the Bible. It's not there. We probably should not quote it that way, because it's wrong. There's, there's some division on that, but even when it comes to the division, it's not as strong as I thought it would be. More and more individuals, as they're studying the difficulty of the language there and the context, we're leaning more towards, as God is speaking, he's speaking to the man who says, the man who hates, meaning the man who hates his wife, or the man who hates God, and divorces, God is saying to that man, that he's going to cover his garment with violence. God's going to bring judgment. That's the idea that's there. So if you hate, so that's the idea. So if you hate your wife or you hate God, which is expressed by you divorcing them, that's what, you're, that's what you are expressing, is that. So we're not saying that God is okay with divorce. He's not. All right? So, so that doesn't change anything. Sometimes we freak out. Oh, I can't believe that you're taking that out of the Bible. Well, I'm not taking anything out of the Bible. We'll make sure that we're really clear on things. Because, and especially today, because when people hear that, they think of all kinds of things when they hear you say, God hates divorce. And there are individuals who feel like, well, I'm divorced, and it, my life's a mess, God hates it, uh, I have no hope. Yeah, that's, that's not true. Now, God still is not pleased with divorce, but I, I'm pretty sure it's clear, because Jesus says it's clear, that divorce is wrong. There is, though, an exception. And that exception is because of sin. And even then, when you read in the Corinthians, it's not the first option you have. If, if your spouse has committed adultery, you can forgive. It does make it difficult if they refuse to stop. Right? That, that mar- so that marriage covenant has been broken by that individual. Right? But, that, but that does pretty much limit um, the reasons that people give. For the fact, for Christians, that is the only uh, reason for divorce. There's no other reason for divorce for Christians. Now, there's another exception given where if a Christian is divorced by their non-believing spouse, but your non-believing spouse is leaving you because of your Christianity, basically. When they, when they do that, when they leave you because of your commitment to God or your, your commitment to, to Christ or that kind of thing, and they want to abandon the marriage, then the Bible actually then says that you're not even to fight that. So, and the reason why that's important is in that situation or in this situation if your spouse is committed adultery, you are free to remarry. You are, you're free to do that. Right? It's not some scar that you have to carry for the rest of your life. Now, just we're not going to get into all this, but if you happened to have been divorced, and it wasn't what we would call a biblical divorce, and you have remarried, you are kind of in a bad situation that cannot be remedied. But God doesn't want you to divorce your current spouse. Just God forgives. That may mean there will be certain things you may never be able to do, right? So, for example, let's say that um, let's uh, let's say that my wife was married and divorced before I met her. It's kind of hard because she was 19 when we got married. But anyway, let's just say that that happened, and we started dating and, and we we married. Okay, now that that would have been wrong on my part to do that. I didn't have the right to do that. Now I'm in this situation. What does that mean? Does God forgive? Absolutely. What's the consequences of that? 
Well, that would then mean that I would never be able to pastor my, the rest of my life. Can't do it. Right, so I'm not, I'm not cut off from God's blessing. I, I can't be a member of the church. There's a lot of things that I can do, but I can't pastor it. I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a relationship, and there's, nothing, there's no way to fix that. Can't be fixed. Now, some people don't like that. We don't like, you know, that absolute hard, but that's, I, I, don't, see any, I don't see a way around that. And I'm, God, would, God is fine, you know. If there's, if there's certain men that can't be pastors, God's not panicking, saying, oh, no, now what do we do? There's, God himself is going to raise up good shepherds. He even says it in the Old Testament, so we don't have to worry about that. We have to get, in fact, part of our quandary with that sometimes is, in America, we get caught up, sometimes, especially in megachurches, in the personality of the pastor. So we think, well, he's the only one that can do this. Well, if your church is built on his personality, then yeah, you've got a problem. And he may be the only one physically, you know, humanly speaking, that can do this. But that's not what God wants. What God wants is people that are faithful to the word. That's it. Faithful to him, faithful to the word. And he'll take care of all the rest. So we need to make sure then that we recognize, again, that marriage, it's a big deal to God. It was his idea to begin with. It all comes from him, but it's a big deal. So divorce is a terrible thing. It's hard, it's horrible, it's heartbreaking. But maybe we should stop saying that God hates divorce in this way. Because not only is it misquoting the scripture, I think it might be misrepresenting the scripture, at least kind of in an, maybe an emotional or a psychological way. Pronouncing that God hates divorce can bring a lot more hurt, confusion, and, and mainly confusion, which is my big thing, is we want to eliminate as often as possible confusion about what the scriptures say. And it can bring feelings of condemnation. And for some of us, there's already enough of that because we're very much aware of our own sin. So that pronouncement, though, doesn't do anything to help the church's message of bringing healing and hope and really a heart in submission to the word of God to others. So again, that's not a, that's not a, a ticket to individuals to go out there and divorce their spouses. That's, that's not what that is. Because God, God brings judgment on that. He, he, he's not happy with that at all. So there's several things I want to take away from this that I think in general are very important. Number one, I've already said it, marriage is important to God. Number two, your marriage is important to God. It matters. Your marriage and the health of your marriage matters to God. Everything about your marriage and everything in your marriage is important to God. Your attitude towards your marriage is important to God. Your attitude towards your spouse is important to God. Your commitment to your marriage, your commitment to your spouse is important to God. And most likely, your commitment to your marriage and your commitment to your wife or your husband, regardless of what it is, is a reflection of your true attitude and commitment to God. You wanna know where you are spiritually? Sometimes take a look at your marriage. Take a look at your heart and what you are thinking about and feeling about when it comes to your spouse. And for some people, that may not be very good because we may be in a situation where we are just tolerating them. Maybe we've come to peace with that. And so we kind of have that arrangement where we're friends and we're friendly. But it's not a marriage. It's not pleasing to God at all. You and your spouse need to be best friends. You and your spouse need to be an encouragement to each other spiritually. You and your spouse need to be close. It doesn't matter what's happened before. God 
can and will bring healing. What often stands in the way, maybe it's always, but at least we can say this, what often stands in the way of healing in our marriage is us. It's your attitude. It's a refusal to submit completely to God, not only in obedience, but a, a complete submission to God where we, in a sense, allow God to change our hearts so that we are not only loving, but in love with our spouse again. That can happen. You can be in love with your spouse again. There may be unbelievably deep betrayal and hurt between you and your spouse and your marriage. That matters to God. That is not insignificant to him. God can bring healing to that. Sometimes, because I've talked to people about this in great detail, they don't want healing because they want that person to suffer the way they've suffered. They don't want to forgive that individual. I don't want to be close to them. I don't want that. In fact, I've made, my, I've made a vow to myself that they would never hurt me that way again. If that's a vow that you've taken, or maybe that's just one you're living out, then you've also then erected not only a wall between you and your spouse, you have erected a wall between you and God. And I believe that you've erected a wall between you and anyone else in your life that you love. You may think that you haven't, but remember, you can't harden only part of your heart. You can't say, well, part of my heart is for my spouse, and that's the part that's hard. All the rest is soft. No, it's the whole heart that hardens. And so there will be a cynicism or a bitterness. Remember that when bitterness takes root, it, it's, it's mentioned specifically in the Bible, in the New Testament, only one place, but it's significant. It says don't allow the root of bitterness, basically, to, to take root in your heart, because if you do, it defiles many. So the word defile, if you follow that through the Bible, the word defile is, is a word that's used uh, that basically when individuals defile, they are put in a position where they're unable to what? Worship God. They're unable to worship God. And if, and if you study worship in the Bible, the worship is more than is what we do on Sunday morning. This is corporate worship. But each of us are to live a life really of worship. That's a, that's a life of service to God. So we, we worship God when we have our devotions, but we also worship God when we go to, go to work to supply for our families. We, we worship God when we teach our children, but also when we play with our children. You, you worship God not only when you have maybe deep spiritual discussions with your wife. Uh, you know, I always speak like I'm a husband because that's what I am. But I'm also um, uh, doing service to God when I'm washing the dishes, which I do, by the way. And fold laundry, which I, I do that as well. I'm not, I'm not looking for any points with that. I, it's a deal I made with my wife. It has to do with football. So anyway, <laughs> so I'm getting something out of it. But anyway, uh, but the idea is all those things are acts of worship. So then with bitterness, what takes place then is unwittingly, you are going to have a negative effect on other people to where you are putting them in danger of where they are unable to worship and serve God. Now, we would never want to do that. And of course, the ones who are the most vulnerable to that are the ones we're closest to, which would be children, grandchildren, your, your spouse, close friends. I don't know about you, but that's, we need to take all that seriously, because God does. 
It's all interrelated, not in a magical way, but in a very, very real and practical way. And so we need to take the words of Jesus and maybe do an inventory of our attitude about our marriage and the way we view it and, and the commitment level that we have and realize what it does reveal and that it may need to change. So you see what in the end, what it reveals is this. It reveals whether or not you and I possess true righteousness. Because remember, it's the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. It's an inner righteousness that exceeds the outward expression of the Pharisees. It is a true devotion to God. See, a true devotion to God is not only seen, because people, we, we see this uh, on a regular basis, where people are willing to sacrifice time and effort and money for complete strangers. They're ready to give themselves almost to the point of exhaustion to all kinds of causes. But you ask them to make that kind of commitment and sacrifice to their spouse? Yeah, that's not happening. I'm not doing that for them. They don't deserve it. Or whatever the case may happen to be. And that reveals not only a negativity, it reveals that you are not walking with the Lord as you may, in the way that you may think that you are. And I want you, because I know I want this, I want you to be in a position where you are blessed by God in everything that you do. I want you to experience the great joy of life, the joy of our salvation, the joy of living out this experience that God has given us, the joy of having your prayers answered, the joy of your soul being fed from the Word of God as you hear the Word of God being taught and as you read the Word of God, where you have a sense of peace and contentment that's with you all of the time, regardless of your circumstances, where you have this trust in the Lord that truly affects the inner man and your attitude towards all people. I want you to have that. And that really is oftentimes wrapped up in your marriage. And so when you take another look at our marriage, recognize its importance and the importance of that other person that God has placed in your life. And go to God and ask God to give you the heart that you need. Maybe a, a, a heart that softens towards them, a heart that's willing to forgive, but also a heart that's willing to confess that you've not maybe been the spouse that you need to be. And maybe you're the one that's the hindrance to your spouse's walk with the Lord. And ask God to change that so that you can have truly a, a marriage that is blissful. It's not pretend. It's not fake. You really are enjoying life together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you, Lord, for the simple words of Jesus. And in these two verses, Father, so much is really packed into them because of what's behind it. What's behind it is what we have in Malachi and in Deuteronomy and in so many other places. So, Father, I ask that for each one here this morning that's married, I pray, Father, that for each one of us, you would help us to examine where our heart is when it comes to our marriage. Father, I know that all of us, we have some difficulties in our marriage. There's going to be disagreements. We're not talking about a seamless marriage. But Father, we know what our attitude is towards that person. We know what's in our heart. We know how strong or how weak our commitment is to marriage and, and to making it work, not just in being able to somehow survive or just get along, but making it, Father, to be all that it is supposed to be. This, this deep, 
long-lasting, loving relationship that is encouraging, even though at the same time, at times, it might be maddening. And Father, we ask for your help with that, and that our attitude would be corrected, that you would correct us, Father. In fact, Father, I, I, I don't ask that you somehow allow us to have it corrected. We just pray, Lord, you would just change it, because we can be really stubborn. I pray, Father, also that we will realize the connection between our marriages and our relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, that we'll recognize that one does reflect the other. And Father, we know that we're supposed to love you and we want to love you, but we don't always because there may be a segment or maybe segments in our life that we hold back. For many, it's, it's in marriage. Of course, Father, for those who, who don't know you, there's no hope for them. Outside of Christ, there's no hope that their marriage will be fulfilling and no hope that a future marriage will be fulfilling. They're not going to find happiness. In fact, they're not even going to find an escape from loneliness by being married, though it may, be, it may happen for a little while to be temporary. I pray, Lord, they would recognize that it all does begin with you, your greatness and your love and, and your hatred for sin your hatred for our sin, but also your love and that you sent your son Christ to die for us. And I pray, Lord, those individuals will see the truth of that, that they will believe the truth of that and place their trust in Christ. Father, we thank you again for your great love to us, that even though when we have been unfaithful, you have always been faithful to us. We do thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>